Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. Today, the story of how one letter written in desperation may have changed the course of history. I vividly remember, in the winter of 2014, going to the cinema to watch the newly released Second World War drama the Imitation Game. I was not impressed. The film, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as genius mathematician and codebreaker Alan Turing, purports to tell the story of how Turing and his team at Bletchley Park cracked the supposedly unbreakable German Enigma Code, allowing Britain and her allies to read thousands upon thousands of secret Axis communications. The film is riddled with inaccuracies and misrepresentations. Among the most egregious, the lack of credit given to Polish codebreakers and people outside Turing's team in helping to crack Enigma and other German codes, the complete fabrication that notorious Soviet spy John Cairncross worked closely with Turing, the slanderous fabrication that Turing chose not to expose Cairncross as a spy because Cairncross in turn threatened to expose Turing's homosexuality and the rather cringeworthy scene in which Turing and his team alone make a judgment call not to share some intercepted intelligence on a U-boat wolf pack bearing down on an Allied convoy for fear the Germans would realise the British had broken Enigma. In reality, Turing and his team did not work in a vacuum. Cairncross and Turing are not believed to have ever met. Turing was never suspected of being a traitor and made no secret to his friends of his sexuality, and decisions on whether to act on intercepted intelligence did not fall to the codebreakers themselves. Yet despite these and many other plot points and character depictions that rankled me, I nonetheless appreciated the film for bringing Alan Turing and his groundbreaking, genuinely world-changing work, ideas and inventions to a wider audience. For the first time, Alan Turing's contribution to our modern world was recognised, not just among historians of science, mathematics and the Second World War, 
but also among the wider public. The film also had a particular personal interest for me. In 2014, when it was released, I was deeply absorbed in developing a major digitization project based on Second World War secret intelligence files held at the UK National Archives. For this project, I spent many weeks shuttling back and forth to the archives at Kew, poring over once top-secret MI6 and Foreign Office files, and, perhaps most excitingly of all, thousands upon thousands of original Axis signals communications that had been intercepted, decrypted and translated by Britain's secret team of codebreakers at Bletchley Park. Why had these intelligence documents survived? Because the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, insisted on reading them personally. Churchill is a man I have a rather ambivalent attitude towards, taking the entirety of his patchy record into account. But he was undeniably tireless and determined in leading Britain's war effort against Nazi Germany, and one aspect of this was his unparalleled attention to detail. Every single day, during his wartime premiership, a bundle of recently deciphered and translated enemy communications were sent by C, the head of MI6, over to Churchill. These were signals sent by Germany or Italy's navies, armies, air forces, or Japan's diplomatic service, often containing very precise details on such things as troop and tank movements, U-boat positions, supplies, reinforcements, and access knowledge of Allied forces. Churchill would initial and date each bundle, always using a red ink pen to show he had read the signals, and would often also annotate them with questions for his staff, ironic remarks, or even, occasionally, grammar corrections. It seems, even at the height of war, with a thousand and one demands on his time, a pedant cannot let go. In preparing these signals intelligence documents for digitization, I sat at a desk in the National Archives and personally leafed through every single thin, brittle page of them. Every single page, which some seventy years before me, Churchill himself had held and scribbled on at his desk in the underground war rooms or in 10 Downing Street, or possibly, as was his wont, from his bed. No matter how many times I go to an archive, the experience of personally, physically touching something, touched by someone in the past, never mind someone as famous as Churchill, never fails to send a thrill of excitement up the spine. Almost ten years on, I still vividly remember looking through these files for the first time. Many of the intelligence documents I looked at were stamped at the top in capital letters with one word, ULTRA. This was the code word that flagged that the intelligence was derived from an Enigma decryption. Ultra was the highest level of security classification, higher even than most secret. This was because it was absolutely vital that the enemy should never discover that the Allies had cracked Enigma. If they did, they would start to use a new system to encrypt their messages. And Alan Turing and his fellow scientists, mathematicians and codebreakers at Bletchley Park would have to start their arduous code-breaking work all over again. And here we return to Alan Turing and the resonance of the imitation game for me. The series of intelligence documents I was reading through at the National Archives 
did not just include the decrypted Axis signals that were the fruit of Turing and the Bletchley Park team's work. They also included a letter written by Alan Turing himself directly to Prime Minister Winston Churchill. The letter was written on the 21st of October, 1941. These were some of the darkest days of the war. Nazi Germany had overrun most of Europe. In the summer, Hitler had launched an invasion of the Soviet Union, and by October, German forces were besieging the capital, Moscow. The war in the East looked bleak. In the West, the United States would not enter the war for another two months. Although just weeks earlier, in September, they had stretched the definition of neutrality by starting to provide naval escorts to the merchant convoys that were crossing the Atlantic. These convoys carried the vital food and supplies that kept Britain fed and fighting. Without her seaborne supplies, Britain would very quickly be strangled out of the war, and Germany knew it. That is why, since the outbreak of war in 1939, the Atlantic Ocean had been one vast battlefield. In the course of the war, German U-boats and battleships sunk around 3,500 Allied merchant ships. To protect their supply shipping, the merchant ships began travelling in convoys, protected by British, Canadian and other Empire Navy ships. Fierce battles ensued. After the war, Churchill would write that the only thing that ever really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. Those U-boats communicated with the German Admiralty with signals encrypted with the most advanced version of the Enigma machine. The Enigma machine had been invented back in 1918 by an engineer, Arthur Scherbius. From 1926 onwards, it was adopted by the German military to encrypt their messages. To describe the machine as simply as possible, at the front was a typewriter, into which the message to be transmitted was typed in plain text. Behind the typewriter were slots for three rotors. Around the outside of these rotors were every letter of the alphabet. When a key was pressed on the keyboard, the setting of the rotor would scramble that letter into a different letter. That new letter appeared lit up on a separate dashboard. To add to the complexity, each Enigma machine had three rotor slots, but five rotors to choose from, alternating which rotors were placed in the machine and in what order, and alternating which letter of the alphabet would be displayed at the top of each rotor when you started typing the message would change how a letter was scrambled. To add yet another layer of complexity, Every time a letter was pressed on the keyboard, the rotors changed position, creating a different configuration for the next letter. Thus, if the same letter appeared twice in a word being typed into the machine in plain text, those identical letters would be scrambled as two separate letters in the encrypted message. To add yet a third layer of complexity, the Enigma machine also had, at the front, a plug board, rather like a plug board at a telephone exchange. The plug board featured every letter of the alphabet and came with ten wires. Each end of each wire would be plugged into a different letter. For example, one wire might be plugged into A and M. In doing so, any time A was pressed on the keyboard, 
it was scrambled to M before the rotor scrambling was applied, and vice versa. The combination of these two encryption systems, the rotors and the plugboard, meant that any message entered into the Enigma machine could be scrambled in a vast number of possible ways. In fact, the machine provided 103 sextillion possible settings. A sextillion, in case you are unsure, as I was, is 1,000 million million million. In other words, the Enigma machine had 103,000 million 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 possible settings. That is a lot. Decoding a message encrypted with the Enigma machine was easy if you knew what settings had been applied when the message was encrypted. In other words, which of the five rotors had been placed in which of the three slots, which letter had been displayed at the top of each rotor, and how the plugboard wires had been inserted. With the same settings applied, all you had to do was type the encrypted message into an Enigma machine, and it would return the plain text message. But if you did not know the settings, how long would it take to work through every one of the 103,000 million 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 possible settings until you happen to hit upon the right one? A year? Ten years? A hundred years? And to make things more difficult, the Germans changed the settings used to encrypt the Enigma messages every day at midnight. So, every day, the Allied codebreakers had only 24 hours to identify the correct Enigma setting that would allow them to decode that day's messages. The next day, they would have to start all over again. Some of those messages might carry highly urgent information about troop, ship or aircraft movements occurring that very same day. In decrypting enemy signals, time was of the essence. The Germans communicating with each other knew what settings to apply as their armed forces issued key sheets detailing each day's settings. So long as those key sheets did not fall into enemy hands, the Germans were confident that their Enigma encryptions were unbreakable. But they were wrong. Polish codebreakers had cracked Enigma as early as 1932. Polish cryptologist Marianne Majewski achieved the remarkable feat of recreating the Enigma machine sight unseen based on intelligence documents, and by 1938, he had invented an electromechanical machine called the Bomber, which provided an automated way to find the Enigma settings. In July 1939, just weeks before Germany invaded Poland, Rajewski and his colleagues shared their information with French and British intelligence. This gave the codebreakers at Fletchley Park a great head start in cracking the Enigma codes. The problem was, the Germans had not sat idle. They continued to make the Enigma machine ever more complex. It was in 1939, with the outbreak of war, that the Germans began changing the Enigma settings daily, requiring the Allies to identify a message's setting within hours, not days. And while the German military were already very confident that Enigma encryptions were unbreakable, the German Navy decided to make sure they were even more unbreakable even than that. Instead of five rotors, naval Enigma machines came with a choice of eight rotors, any one of which could fit into any one of the three rotor slots. 
German Navy signals were the hardest to crack, and also for Britain, arguably the most important. If Britain lost the Battle of the Atlantic, if her supplies were cut off, she would be knocked out of the war. And in 1940, the Battle of the Atlantic was not going well. British convoys simply did not know when and where a German U-boat might suddenly appear out of the deep blue and torpedo them. The only way to know this was to crack the German Navy's encrypted signals. This was the task that fell to Alan Turing. Turing was a mathematical genius. He was only 27 when he joined Bletchley Park at the outbreak of war in 1939. By that time, he had already graduated in mathematics from Cambridge and earned a PhD from Princeton. The papers he published during his career transcended mathematics to encompass early ideas on computer science. His groundbreaking work would lay the basis for future developments in digital computing and artificial intelligence. He was also a logician and in the 1930s had studied cryptanalysis. He was the ideal person to lead the team that was set the apparently impossible challenge of cracking the German Navy Enigma messages. This team worked in Hut 8 of Bletchley Park. To crack Enigma, Alan Turing, with input from fellow codebreaker Gordon Welshman, put all the brilliance of his mathematics, logic and machine design to work to build the bomb machine. This was a more complex, powerful, faster version of the bomber built by Rajewski. The bomb machine was effectively 36 Enigma machines wired together. Having been fed an encrypted message, it simulated several Enigma machines running at once, working through all the possible settings and discounting those that did not work. The bomb machine was able to identify a day's Enigma settings. In other words, discount the millions and millions of incorrect settings in an astonishingly fast 20 minutes. Just 20 minutes at the start of the day, and every single German signal intercepted that day could be read and potentially acted upon. So as to do this, though, the codebreakers needed to feed the machine a crib word, a word from the encrypted message that they could accurately make a guess at. As an example, they could reasonably reliably assume that some messages would end in Heil Hitler. This gave the bomb machine a handful of letter solutions to base its workings on. By mid-1940, the codebreakers in Hut 6 of Bletchley Park, led by fellow bomb designer Gordon Welshman, had cracked the German Army and Air Force Enigma messages. But the Navy's Enigma, with its additional rotors, was proving a tougher nut to crack for Turing's team in Hut 8. Then, in May 1941, they were handed an amazing piece of luck. The crew of a Navy ship, HMS Bulldog, had boarded a German submarine, the U-110, and captured her Enigma machine and codebooks. Among the haul was that month's key sheet, which enabled the British to read German Navy encrypted signals for several weeks. After that key sheet expired, the insight the codebreakers gained from the pattern of decrypted messages proved extremely helpful in advancing their codebreaking. By mid-1941, Alan Turing's team in Hut 8 had cracked the supposedly unbreakable German Navy Enigma. Their achievement gave the Allies a decided advantage in the Battle of the Atlantic, and throughout that year, shipping losses decreased 
as Allied convoys were able to evade the U-boat packs. But it was an achievement that the British were at risk of squandering. We'll get back to the story shortly. Now, a quick interval for me to say thank you very much for listening to this episode. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about the podcast and subscribe for future episodes, you can go to shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. That's shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. Or find and follow Archive Sleuth on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Links to all these sites are in the show notes. That's enough from me. Now, just a short commercial break, then back to the story. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The codebreakers in huts 6 and 8 had to work around the clock, but they were woefully understaffed and overstretched. After months of pleading for more staff to support them in their vital work, by October, Alan Turing, Gordon Welshman, and two other leading codebreakers took matters into their own hands. 
they decided the only thing to do was to write directly to Winston Churchill themselves. It is this letter that I first came across almost ten years ago, amidst the ream of ultra-intelligence documents I was preparing for digitization. It is a three-page typed letter, written on the 21st of October, 1941. The letter is addressed from Hut 6 and Hut 8 at Fletchley Park, and is headed, Secret and Confidential, Prime Minister Only. The letter begins by mentioning a visit Churchill made to Bletchley Park several weeks earlier. We believe you regard our work as important, the codebreakers say, before launching into the reason for their writing to him. To quote from the first page of the letter, Thanks to the energy and foresight of Commander Travis, we have been well supplied with the bombs for the breaking of the German Enigma codes. Commander Travis was a veteran of the Government Code and Cipher School, and since 1939 had had overall command of the Enigma decryption teams at Bletchley. The letter continues. We think, however, that you ought to know that this work is being held up, and in some cases is not being done at all, principally because we cannot get sufficient staff to deal with it. Our reason for writing to you direct is that for months we have done everything that we possibly can through the normal channels and that we despair of any early improvement without your intervention. No doubt in the long run these particular requirements will be met, but in the meanwhile still more precious months will have been wasted. The codebreakers go on to list their requirements. In Hut 8, they required at least 20 more Grade 3 women clerks. These 20 additional women would allow the team to resume working night shifts, which they had had to stop recently due to staff shortages. Not working night shifts delayed the cracking of each day's Enigma code by 12 hours each day, which could have major repercussions if vital intelligence was decrypted but seen too late. In Hut 6, the letter writers reported that since May, five months previously, a shortage of trained typists had meant they could not get all the wireless traffic being picked up from the Middle East decoded. They needed 20 trained typists to put this right. Finally, Huts 6 and 8 had both been told in July that members of the Women's Royal Navy Service, known as Wrens, would be assigned to take over the vital work of testing the stories produced by the bomb machines the stories being the limited number of solutions which the bomb calculated were the key to that day's encryptions. By October, these wrens had still not been assigned, which meant the staff in huts 6 and 8 could not be freed up to do other important code-breaking work. The code-breakers complained to Churchill that despite their repeated appeals for more resources, they had been met only with impediments. The cumulative effect, they wrote, has been to drive us to the conviction that the importance of the work is not being impressed with sufficient force upon those outside authorities with whom we have to deal. Here, Turing and his colleagues hit upon the nub of his problem. Staff requests would have been escalated up administrative chains. So heavily guarded was the secret that the British had cracked Enigma that even Bletchley Park staff working outside Huts 6 and 8 were not aware of it. It is hardly surprising, then, that the Enigma team's requests for a relatively small number of typists and clerks had gotten held up in a backlog of similar requests, no doubt coming in from every quarter of the military and civilian war machinery. 
one can only imagine how frustrated Turing and his colleagues felt. They had achieved what was widely believed to have been impossible. They had cracked the most difficult encryption system in the world. And yet, full advantage of this incredible breakthrough was not being seized for want of a few dozen typists and clerks. The codebreakers concluded their letter to Churchill thus. We have written this letter entirely on our own initiative. We do not know who or what is responsible for our difficulties, and most emphatically, we do not want to be taken as criticising Commander Travis, who has all along done his utmost to help us in every possible way. But if we are to do our job as well as it could and should be done, it is absolutely vital that our wants, small as they are, should be promptly attended to. Churchill agreed. Contained within the same file as this letter is a handwritten note. The writing is in Churchill's distinctive red ink and small scrawl. It reads succinctly, General Ismay, make sure they have all they want on extreme priority and report to me that this has been done. W.C. Churchill has dated his note the 22nd of October just the day after the Bletchley Codebreakers wrote their letter. Churchill needed no convincing of the importance of their request. To underline the point, he affixed a bold red sticker to the top of his note, bearing the words, in black capital letters, ACTION THIS DAY. Discovering this small file was doubly thrilling. First, because it contained a letter actually written by Alan Turing, and what's more, actually signed by him as well. Turing, Gordon Welshman, and both the deputy heads of Hut 6 and 8, Hugh Alexander and Stuart Milner-Barry, all signed the letter by hand. These four men were all highly talented codebreakers who made key contributions to cracking the Enigma code. But seeing Turing's name written in his own hand in particular was a very special moment. The second reason it was a remarkable discovery is because coming across the handwriting of one 20th century history maker would have been enough. But it was sat right alongside a handwritten note from Winston Churchill beneath an Action This Day sticker. Even in the thousands of intelligence files I leafed through, I saw very few of those stickers. They are now legendary. Churchill apparently designed them himself, and they are symbolic of his determination to make things happen as soon as possible and his unerring ability to find just the right catchy turn of phrase. So famous is the Action This Day sticker that you can now buy memorabilia bearing its image, everything from chocolate bars and fridge magnets to replica stickers. The Codebreaker's letter is now a somewhat famous moment in history because it is also featured in the film The Imitation Game. Though, as was the want of that film, the script played hard and fast with the truth. In the film, Turing alone is depicted as writing the letter, and he does so because he resents the orders and roadblocks of the commander of his unit, Hugh Alexander. Turing is seen giving the letter to the head of MI6, Sir Stuart Menzies, to deliver to Churchill. In response, Churchill puts Turing in charge of the Enigma Codebreakers, ruffling more than a few feathers at Blitchley Park. This sequence is almost entirely devoid from reality. Turing was one of four authors of the letter. One of the other authors was Hugh Alexander. Alexander was never in command of Turing, 
and did not obstruct his work, and Turing is never believed to have met Sir Stuart Menzies. The letter actually reached Churchill so quickly because one of the letter writers, Stuart Milner Barry, personally travelled from Bletchley Park to London to deliver it to 10 Downing Street. What the film did get right, though, is the great impact that a direct order from Churchill could have. Hut 6 and 8 staffing shortages were almost immediately solved. The final item in the file containing Turing's letter is a typewritten note to Churchill from General Hastings Ismay. Ismay was Churchill's chief of staff and his main military adviser throughout the war. Ismay wrote to Churchill almost a month later, on the 18th of November, 1941. He confirms that on receiving Churchill's Action This Day note, he immediately got in touch with the Ministry of Labour and the Department of the Admiralty, which dealt with the Wrens, and gave instructions that the staff requirements at Bletchley Park should be given extreme priority. Brigadier Menzies has now reported that the supply of labour for Bletchley is being very rapidly met. He adds that it is not entirely completed, but that he is satisfied that every possible measure is being taken. The provision of more staff was far from the end to the challenges the codebreakers at Bletchley Park would face. Throughout the war, the Axis nations continued to develop their encryption systems. In early 1942, Germany redesigned the Enigma machine to have slots for four rotors rather than three, a development which made it impossible for the Allies to read any Navy encrypted messages for several months. Losses to U-boat attacks rose again, until later that same year, Turing and his team developed the bomb machine to manage this added complication. From 1942 onwards, the Allies were consistently reading Enigma messages. And at least, no matter what new code-breaking challenges arose, Turing and his team could be sure now that they had Churchill's personal backing to always secure the staff numbers they needed to fulfil their vital work. As you may have deduced from the quotes from this letter, that staff was almost entirely composed of women. When the story of Second World War code-breaking is told, the focus, as it has been in this episode, is usually on the individual geniuses, the Alan Turing's and the Gordon Welshman's, who made the remarkable leaps of mathematics, logic, linguistics and engineering to break the unbreakable. But code-breaking in the Second World War was not the remit of a few isolated geniuses. It was an industrial enterprise. By 1945, Bletchley Park, Britain's code-breaking HQ, employed around 10,000 staff. In the imitation game, the female contingent is described in passing as a group of women who do the clerical tasks and live in the nearby town. In fact, no less than 75% of the 10,000 staff were women, mostly very young women, under the age of 24, recruited from either the universities or, in large numbers, from the Women's Royal Navy Service. These women were involved in every stage of intelligence gathering and decryption. At wireless stations around the country, women listened in on enemy transmissions to transcribe enciphered messages. Women dispatch riders travelled at high speeds by motorbike to carry these transcriptions to Bletchley Park. At Bletchley, women operated code-breaking machinery, including the proliferating number of bomb machines. They worked on code-breaking, 
they translated deciphered access messages into English. They analysed enemy signals traffic. They compiled and indexed vast reams of information from deciphered communications to assist in deciphering future messages. They worked around the clock in eight-hour shifts, conducting the most secret and some of the most important work of the Allied war effort. And, sworn to secrecy, they never spoke about what they did for decades. Alan Turing, Gordon Welshman, and their team of mostly male codebreakers in Huts 6 and 8 did the impossible. They worked out how to crack Enigma. Not once, but repeatedly, as the Enigma machine evolved. Although counterfactual history is always a tricky area, some historians estimate that the codebreakers shortened the war by as much as two years. They certainly saved thousands of lives. But all those thousands of messages the Axis power sent by Enigma would not have been deciphered, were it not for the skill, dedication and tirelessness of the thousands of women who worked at Bletchley. And that is another reason why I was so struck by the small intelligence file I came across at the National Archives back in 2014. The papers inside had been held and written by some of the most singularly significant figures of the Second World War. Turing, Churchill, Ismay. But in its urging for more women staff, the Codebreaker's letter highlights the critical importance of the vast female workforce at Bletchley, the women who, quietly, for years without acknowledgement, made an extraordinary contribution to history. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back with another story from the archives on Thursday the 30th of June. In the meantime, please do spare a few seconds to leave me a rating or review on your favourite podcast app or on Podchaser. And if you enjoy listening, why not recommend the podcast to your friends and family? Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. The Bletchley Park Codebreaker's Letter to Winston Churchill and Churchill's Note is held at the National Archives UK and was digitised for the resource Secret Files from World Wars to Cold War, available from Coherent Digital. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, Depth for Focus by Shane Ivers and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.